Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Guys, I want to I want to start by just sharing with you that, um, you know, this is a interesting, you know, this is a, an amazing season and what a, an interesting thing that comes about in a time where we're celebrating the birth of our Savior and, and where we're focusing on that. Um, we get distracted by a great many things. Uh, I think you guys know uh, or have known my views on kind of commercialism and how we've done this with Christmas. But another thing that distracts us in this time is that this happens to be the time that coincides with lots of sickness. <laughs> and I have no idea, like, tis the season, you know? So, um, and uh, I'm dealing with a little bit of a cold, but um, there are many in our community that are dealing with some sickness, dealing with struggles. And so I just ask that you would be praying for them. Um, Dylan is out. We don't have our adult kids class or our large kids class. Do what? Elementary. Elementary kids class because Dylan is sick and Jacob is sick. And, you know, so just some, you know, I just encourage you to be praying for them. I went this week and um, visited with Bob Briggs, who's also in the hospital. And, um, I was able to spend some time with him and pray with him and, and just kind of uh, see him, you know, I don't know, through some, through a hard time. So I want to encourage you guys to be pay, praying for Bob. He's, he's definitely in the throes of it. If you'd like more information about what God's, uh, what uh, Bob is going through, uh, Nancy is over here. She'll be uh, more than willing to share with you what's going on. So I just want to encourage you, we're to be a people of prayer, so I want you to be praying for all those in our community that are sick. Uh, so far, we've talked uh, about disorder and man. That's, that's kind of the theme of this, this leg of the Genesis series. And, and what we mean, what I mean by disorder and man is how, um, how mankind made a mess of God's good design. Uh, and I think we can look at our world, we can see, you know, sickness and other things like that as potential uh, uh, points of reference for this uh, broken design. Um, but we really do need to understand uh, what it means for us to mess up God's good design. I need to explore that a bit better, and we're going to do that today. Um, for clarity's sake, I want to I spell out what took place in the garden uh, what actually took place in the garden, so that we don't uh, we don't miss the point, because I think we're I think we're so inundated by children's storybook versions of the Bible that um, we reduce everything to some sort of small little moral lesson, but we miss what God is actually trying to communicate to us, and we miss what the story is communicating. So understanding what actually happened, as opposed to this kind of child storybook version, is going to go a long way in engaging with a skeptical culture, because what I have found is that much of the skepticism is skepticism based on a wrong story to begin with. Isn't that fascinating? They're like, you believe this? And then I'm like, no. And they're usually shocked, like, wait, wait, wait a second, I thought that's what you believed. I'm like, well, that's, that's one thing that some people believe, but it's often uh, a truncated or a small or a childish version of it. So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what sin is. That's a really important element to this, what sin is, how it was ushered into the world 
because we're talking about what happened in the garden uh, to, uh, to create this disorder and why you and I still have to contend with sin. And, and maybe we'll deal with in what ways do we contend with sin. We're going to include, or I'm going to include this talk about archetypes again where we talk about Adam and we talk about Jesus as literal characters very much, but also as archetypes for for a bigger picture. I also told you last week that we would be talking about some controversial ideas in Genesis. Ideas like the Nephilim or was the flood a worldwide flood or a localized flood. Uh, the story of Babel and, and what I believe to be its counterpart in Pentecost, um, as well as the, the whole idea of hell. And we are going to cover those. I just got into this this week and realized that I needed, to, uh, I needed to make sure I focused my time just on this before we get into the, the weeds of uh, weird. <laughs> can, you, can you understand that, the weeds of weird? Yes. So the first question that we're going to talk about today, you know, we're, we're wondering what happened in the garden. So what exactly is sin and uh, why, why understanding sin matters is, is huge. So a couple of things that people do is they, they associate sin with um, a crime, right? So sin is this crime and we, we've committed a crime against God, okay? Uh, so that's, that's one take on sin. Another take on sin um, is that sin is a burden to be, uh, to be born, right? So, so to, to be held. Uh, we get this idea from Genesis when uh, Cain says, my, my punishment is too great for me to bear. And, and we, we also see this echoed throughout the scripture where the, the sin of humanity is rested upon something else, whether that's through sacrifices or through King Jesus, right? And so we've got sin as a burden to be carried. Uh, it's also referenced in the scripture, or we, we uh, imply ideas in the scripture that it is a debt to be repaid. You guys have all heard this, this idea that Christ paid a debt that he didn't owe, right? Um, and we owed a debt, but we, we didn't have to pay it. And so that's one uh, take on sin. And another one, and we, we kind of arrive at this fairly early in the text of scripture, is that sin is missing the mark. And although these ideas are derived from the text of Scripture, not all of them are um, adequate and definitely not all of them are equal in their weight as to what sin really is. Uh, so, so we need to understand that. Uh, that people are, um, the, the ideas that people are coming up with are very much uh, rooted in the text of Scripture, or at least they're deriving it from the Scripture. They're not coming up with these things out of the blue. But we still have to weigh when we teach something whether or not it's whether or not it, the teaching is filled with assumptions or other things, right? And so we have to be careful as we study uh, the topic of sin. Definitions uh, change with usage. I think you all know this. Our definitions change over time there, um, and with usage. And this is why I've quoted Dr. Heiser many times when he says, words don't mean anything, but people mean things by words. I've always, I love the statement. I've always looked for a, a better way to communicate that same point because there's, there's challenge in that, right? But John Walton says it this way, and I think this is where I can, I can rest my hat a little bit. He says, the meaning of words are derived from their use, not from their etymology. 
And so what we're saying in this is important, and that is when a word is used, it is used in a context, and somebody means something by that word. And when you don't know the context, you can go to the dictionary all you want, but you might walk away with a wrong understanding, okay? And you, and you will do this when you think about old words, <laughs> right, um, or old definitions to words. So with this said, um, the word for sin or the words for sin can help us to recognize some ways that we see sin, and I want you to see the dis distinction here. There are ways that we see sin, the, the outflow of sin. We talk about rebellion. We talk about transgression. We talk about iniquity. We talk about guilt. This is where these ideas of missing the mark come into play. But this is, these are, in, in many ways, the outgrowth of sin, the outworkings of this, right? So in thinking about sin, another way of looking at it might be to ask what sin does rather than what sin is. Because when you understand what it does, then you can understand the definition that was meant by, by the writer, right? And so I'm just going to give you a basic definition uh, that I think you should work with. And you can challenge it and you can push back. I always invite you to do that. Um, but I believe what sin does is sin disorders life. I think what we see in scripture is that sin disorders life, okay? And because sin is a disordering of life, the definition of sin would be that which disorders life, right? Something that disorders life. Therefore, the exact act, the things that we do, the missing the mark, the transgression, the rebellion, whatever, these are less important um, and, and yet we get caught up on them. We're obsessed with the action. I'm sorry that I'm eating a cough drop right now. It's annoying, I'm sure. But um, we're obsessed with the actions and we get ourselves so off track on the actions that we miss what sin does and why God actually has a problem with it, right? So again, sin disorders life. You can see, um, you can see this throughout the text of Scripture, right? If Genesis 1 is about the ordering of the cosmos, right? God has created this temple structure and he wants to meet with earth, heaven meets with earth. Then sin is this, dis and, and you see sin is a disordering of life. It actually helps us to understand what God is so broken about within the garden, okay? It doesn't make sense when we just put it into this category of they ate an apple and all of humanity is cursed. And by the way, this is why skeptics look at us and go, this is the stupidest story that anyone has ever created. And my response is, yes, that is the stupidest story anyone's ever created, but that's not the story that the Bible communicates. That's not the story that God tells us, right? It makes sense, this sin disordering, uh, the disordering of life, it makes sense of a great many things, including uh, uh, Adam and Eve's actions. Uh, it, it breaks down the children's storybook version. It makes sense of what was ushered into the world, which is a very hard principle for Christians even to understand. And what we are um, prey to, sin is something we are prey to. How many of you know that sin is an enemy? And sin is the last enemy that God will destroy, which means sin is personified. Sin is an 
enemy, okay? And so it has to be attacked. So we are prey to something, and at the same time, we are prone to it. But what in the world do we mean by we're prone to sin? There are entire traditions in the church that say prone to sin means that all you can ever do is come out of the womb sinning. And the problem is there's, there's really no justification for the idea because the premise is based wrong. Okay, the premise is wrong from the get-go. We we've got this idea that that sin is just this kind of weird, uh, you know, cancer within us. But what we are prone to is this idea of usurping authority, taking wisdom for ourselves, wanting to make our own decisions, and therefore disordering the world. This is also why Cain was not right after Adam and Eve. You got to think about this. If we, if we want to talk about like close to the epicenter of sin, wouldn't you think that the children of Adam and Eve would be like the worst of the worst? You think like, man, sin is just bad. And what is Abel? Abel's awesome. Abel's doing what is right in God's sight. And we look at that and go, nope, no one's right. No, not one. Everyone's a sinner. Fine, fine. Because they adopted a a disordered world. But But Abel did it right. And Cain did it absurdly wrong, and yet Cain had the opportunity to order it right. His sin is crouching at the door. You can master it. Cain goes, nah, I'd rather shoot my brother, right? right? I mean, there's days when that is the case, but, right, so, but the, disorder, the disorder is the problem, okay? So it makes sense of all of this, and then it makes sense of this amazing truth in salvation. And once I get there, I think you'll see it. So let's contrast sin, what sin does, from merely missing the mark or a crime. Mark Biddle writes this. He says, the the biblical model sees sin as the disequilibrium pervasive in a system of disarray. What the flip is that? Okay, he says that sin is the breaking of the equilibrium that God had established, and we are making it uh, we're making it disordered, right? We're, there's a disequilibrium inside of this, okay? And, so, and, and why is that pervasive inside of this system? It's pervasive inside of the system because we're actually children of our father, Adam, in, in that respect, right? And so we took this and we said, we're going to figure this out on our own and the sins of the father get revisited on the children but that has a deeper meaning too it doesn't mean because you are an alcoholic your children will necessarily be alcoholics but it does imply that if you are um, if you are given to sins and brokenness and all of this stuff you are discipling your children in something how many of you know that you're discipling your children in something and then all of a sudden they do the thing this is actually why uh this is actually why those sins of the father don't have to be revisited on the children. There are many times when this wickedness is interrupted by a Josiah. It is interrupted by a person who goes, no, I will do this in the order that God has established. Isn't that a beautiful picture that you see? Right? And so, so he says the biblical model sees sin in, uh, as this de- disequilibrium pervasive in a system of disarray. Authentic human existence aspires to realize its full potential 
of God's likeness while consistently acknowledging its, its creatureliness and its limitations. That's actually a, a, a beautiful and true statement. The authentic human is a person who, um, who wants to aspire to godlikeness, godliness, and yet acknowledges that we're a creature. That's the truth of it. However, sin is disequilibrium in this aspiration. Humanity then failing to reflect its divine calling, humanity forgetting its limitations. So you notice that the Bible says that, that uh, the serpent says to Adam, or says to Eve, that you will be like God when you eat of this tree. But what's fascinating is it only means, it's only within reference to, with reference to wisdom. Nowhere in the Bible does the serpent imply that you would be omnipresent. Nowhere uh, does, does the, the scripture declare the aseity of man, right? N- nothing about this is there. What is true is if we eat of this, We are taking on wisdom ourselves, and we're trying to be wisdom. We're trying, instead of God being wisdom, right, we're trying to hold it. We're trying to do this. And guess what that is, guys? That's disorder of the highest order. Because you can't, you can't do it, okay? And so, um, to, to say that sin is merely missing the mark... Misses the mark, <laughs> right? To say that sin merely misses the mark is to miss the mark. The, the, the concept here is not, I ate a, a fruit in the garden and therefore all of humanity is subject to stupidity. It's just not what we see in Scripture. I've already pointed it out that Cain didn't have to follow suit, but he did because he chose disorder. He chose his own way, Right? Uh, missing the mark is a fascinating concept too because uh, Jesus seems to want to take a shot at just the action, right? He says, well, um, I know that murder is wrong. I'm the one who told you, right? But I, but I also want you to know if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already murdered him. Why? You never even did or didn't do the action to miss a mark, The issue is you've reordered what's going on. In your head, you're like, I hate my brother and I want to hate my brother. And that's the problem. That's what we do. We do this a lot. I do this driving down the road. You do it somewhere, right? It doesn't doesn't matter, but we get into this place and and we're prone to this because we're disordering the system. This is also why... um, this is also why works-based salvation is so hilariously absurd. Because the work, the actions, the mark that we're hitting, and whether we make the mark or hit the mark or miss the mark, uh, those are all predicated in actions, are all rooted in actions. And so whether or not we, we miss the mark or hit the mark, we broke the order, and no amount of order keeping God's way makes the order go back together. You see it? The world is cursed. The world is falling apart. It's been subjected to futility. This is not going away because we work our way into it. And here's the beauty. It was never intended to be a merit system in the beginning. God did want us to operate within order. But what was the foundation of the relationship? He was creator and we were his image bearers. And work always flowed out of that. We were always supposed to do what God told us to do. 
And I, I love that, but I want you to hear it. Works-based salvation couldn't be the case because you can't reorder anything. You can pretend, you can be a Pharisee, and you can get all right actions well for a long time. You can just, you can be good, but you can't reorder. We need Jesus. We need something to set this right. We need God to establish again what we broke in his good creation. So how was sin uh, ushered into the world? How was it ushered into the world? With, with this simple clarification and meaning that sin uh, is a disordering of life, we can now make sense of what Adam and Eve did. Genesis 3 doesn't actually make mention of sin. Did you know that? doesn't actually make mention of sin. But we can see that there was disobedience. Don't eat of this. They did it anyway. This is why we come to the conclusion that everything fell apart because they just did a thou shalt not. But that's not what's going on. Again, it's not just disobedience. It's not just the eating of a fruit that brings about the fall. There's something behind all of this. And this is where Genesis is very clear. Genesis 3.5, Genesis 3.6, Genesis 3.22, and Genesis 3.23 all tell us what the real problem is. And we wanted to be like God. That's the problem, church. The problem is that sin enters the world when we don't want to acknowledge God for who He is. God. Sovereign. King. Ruler. Authority over everything. Even over my life. We don't want to acknowledge that. Why? Well, because the fruit looks pretty. Right? And the allure of wisdom and my way is what seems so amazing. So, so where do we connect sin with this particular act in the Bible? Where do we connect Genesis 3 actually being sin? We see it in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Turn with me in your Bibles there. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Now, let's just read that with this disordering of life, okay? I just want you to think about this. Therefore, just as through one man disordering of life entered into the world, okay? This disordering of life, and death came through that, okay? We're going to talk about that uh, whether I have time today or not. So death spread to, this is important guys, say that, so death spread to all men. It has nothing to do with animals. This is what we read in the scripture. There is nothing that indicates in Genesis that death of some kind did not pre-exist. Nothing. Death spread to who? All men. All men. Because why? What is that? It's a death sentence. It's a death sentence, and this is a very important principle that people struggle with. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. But what is sin? The disordering of life. All disordered life. All of us went against God's way and his plan, and we took it upon ourselves. Now you say, Nathan, you just talked about Abel, and you said that he was a good, is a good guy. Well, Abel is still in a world where he has, a, um, where he has an enemy 
death, and he also, and, and the devil, but he, so he has an enemy, and he also has a life that is set out before him of people ordering life themselves, especially his father, right? Okay, Adam and Eve, for that matter. Okay, so for until law, verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world. That's an interesting line, and you should chew on that one for a while. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And this is where it's really amazing. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Okay, hold on a second. Was there a law? Wasn't there a law? Why is death reigning? Because death is a death sentence. It was the tree of life was taken from us. Do you understand? So we go back to here, and it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. But what did they still do? All still sinned and all died, right? We're clear on that. What it is, is it's not about an action that you miss the mark of. It is about a disorder. It is about constantly disordering God's system. So Everyone disordered life, even though it wasn't in the exact likeness of the offense of Adam, plus that tree was taken from them, right? Who is a type of him who was to come. Adam here becomes this, um, he becomes this not only a, a type of, of uh, Christ figure, but we're, we're going to talk about how. It's all about what he ushers in and then what Christ ushers in, right? But it's also true that he is an archetype of all of us. Adam sinned and therefore all sin. Why? Because we are children of Adam. That's who we are, okay? And so where do we connect sin with this act? We connect it right there in Romans 5, 12 through 14. What is seen in Genesis, according to Paul, was sin. It was a disordering of life. So, the disorder of life, the disordering of life enters through one man. The disordering in view in Genesis is that, not, uh, is that of not running to God for wisdom, but taking, uh, taking that wisdom upon ourselves. Well, Nathan, the problem is you just said that in Genesis it was man's decision to be like God. So, which is it? Is it, is it taking wisdom upon himself or be like God? And my answer is yes, yes, that's the point. To be like God is to want to have the wisdom, but to not have any of that relationship, okay? This event is the same as um, what one of your kids might do when they say, I'll do it myself. How much you like that? I mean, seriously, parents, how much you like that? It's a wonderful thing. It usually comes with a folding of hands in my house, like, <laughs> this is Becca's face, Right? You know why I know Becca's face so well? Because it's my face. Anyway, so I pout the exact same way. It's annoying. But anyway, right? Your kids say, I'll do it myself, or I want to do it my way. I just want to do things my way. This is at the core of what's going on. The skeptical world goes, you, your whole system says that your loving God subjected an entire world to chaos because some idiots ate a fruit. No. That is not what my story tells. My story tells that there was a humanity who disordered life and said, God, we don't need you. That's what humanity said. And so God goes, okay, then get out of my garden. Get out of my garden, right? 
So besides this idea of I can do it myself or I want to do it my way sounding a lot like Billy Joel, because it is Billy Joel, right? Right? Um, I hope that you see all the stories in the Bible the same way. The prodigal son. What's the problem with the young son? Disorder. He doesn't want to do it his dad's way. He doesn't want to do life this particular way. So he, he flies the coop. This is exactly what the Bible tells in every story. What's happening in the flood? Disorder. The world is not for God's order. What's happening at Babel? They don't need God. They're making an image to themselves, disordering life. What happens in Nineveh? What happens with uh, Jonah and God's problem with Jonah? Nineveh is disordering their life, and then Jonah wants to disorder it by not doing what God says over and over and over and over. This is the story of the Bible, okay? And so we just keep getting to this place, and we're seeing what sin truly is, and we're also seeing why it comes to bear on us, because the sins of the Father revisit the Son, and they do so because that's what we've been discipled in. We are just a broken people, right? Now, with people as the source and center of wisdom, and that's what, we, that's what Adam and Eve tried to do, the result was what? Disorder, right? This disorder not only extended to all people, but also to the entire cosmos, which is a really twisted idea. The curse, again, as I shared last week, was enacted upon the ground, not upon man. So what does that mean? It literally means our disorder subjected the world to futility. And Paul tells us that. Paul tells us that you have subject that God subjected the world to this, okay? And we and it, it's in light of us, right? It's in light of us. We are the ones doing wrong. John Walton says this. He says, "Wisdom is good, and therefore we can safely assume that God did not intend to withhold it from humanity. But true wisdom must be acquired through a process, generally from instruction by those who are wise." And so what was the process for Adam? What was the process for Eve? Walk with me in the garden. Commune with me. All that knowledge of what is good and evil, I will give you wisdom in time. I will share with you the truth of what is good, what is bad. Remember, for them to be able to choose wrong, the potential of choosing wrong, it had to be there. For them to have the knowledge of good and evil, evil has to exist which is another reason why we need to be okay with ideas of when death enters the picture. We also just need to be okay with what the Bible says and not what we imply, right? So, so it's a fascinating thing here, what's going on. Uh, wisdom has is, is been God's uh, plan for all of us, always under his instruction, his tutelage, and always because he is the epitome of wisdom. He is wisdom, right? This makes sense of a lot in Scripture as well. This makes sense of the concept that I've been sharing with you for weeks now, that Adam and Eve were intended to be lifelong learners. They didn't know squat in the garden, guys. They're like searching around. Adam's searching around. He's like, everybody has a counterpart. I don't have one. God's going, I know. I'm glad you saw it. So now I'll build you one, right? And he's showing Adam these things. But the, the usurpation here is that Adam reaches out and goes, I'm not waiting for you. I'm not waiting for you, right? And this is the temptation of the devil. But it makes sense of Adam as a lifelong learner. It also makes sense of why the scripture would say that a church, 
this may seem like a jump to you, but it, it makes sense of why the scripture would tell us that a church needs to have elders, the older who teach the younger. Why? It's a wisdom. How many of you took, this is a weird question, I gotta phrase it well. How many of you at one point in your life thought you knew what you needed to know, but when you, when you carried out an action, you screwed it all up. You thought you knew. You're like, I got this, right? How many of you did that while you were in your parents' house? The rest of you are freaking liars. Anyway, so okay, right? So okay, so, so we do this all the time. This is what we're doing constantly. We're like, I got this, I got this, I got this. And God goes, no, no. Just walk with me, just walk with me, just walk with me. But what happens in the prodigal son story when the father has told him this is what's true and this is what's good and it's, I'm doing all these good things for you. The son does not listen and the son goes, I'll see ya. Now do you know what happened in the garden? We just said I'll see ya. We hid from him, by the way, guys. God didn't hide from us. We hid from him. We were overwhelmed by the reality of what we knew about ourselves now. We were naked and filled with shame. We ran. So God gives us what we want, which also should play deeply into any theory or idea of eternity in hell. Okay? I just put that out as a, a weird little teaser. But it's interesting that God wants us to go through a process of gaining wisdom, of shaping us, and, and bringing us to this place. And, and it also, in a very curious and not so, not so enjoyable way, makes sense of why it feels like God is taking so long. I know that, that is, it's not a sufficient answer, but we look at the world and we go, Lord, please, just fix this mess. Like, why can't you just reset it? We'll do it right this time. And he goes... No, you won't. You won't. I've given you a ton of chances, right? I've given you a ton of times. What's going to happen is you're going to just jump right back into it. So what's going to happen is I'm going to show you what an ordered life looks like. And that's when we're going to come to Jesus in just a second. So the third thing that we need to do is why do we have to contend with this particular thing? Romans 5, 12 through 14 again tells us that through Adam, this archetype, all of this mess flooded in. We're dealing with this because our father is pushing us in, subjected us into this as well, right? And so there's disorder. We learn from it. We're discipled in it. And that's why we have to do it. Make no mistake, just as Cain was able to say no to sin, you too are able to say no to sin. And do you notice that Cain was able to say no to sin before, I know this is really controversial and I'm not suggesting that there's a way to heaven apart from Jesus, but Cain was able to say no to sin before the cross and before the Holy Spirit, at least in the idea that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Whoa, well, no, Nathan, that doesn't fit with my uh, assumed worldview that I jammed in through my theology. Well, tough. The Bible says something different. You don't have to do stupid. You don't. Now, are you going to? Turn to your husband, turn to your wife, turn to your neighbor and say, I am going to do stupid. Do it now. <laughs> right? I am going to do stupid. You're going to do stupid because you are trained in it. You turn to the person next to you and say, thanks a lot for that one. Anyway, so, no, don't do that. Right? 
Only if your parents are in the... <laughs> that was bad. Anyway. So why do we have to contend with it? Romans 5 says that we're subjected to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. Turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. Starting at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, why do all die? Because all sin, all sin. The Bible does not say you're guilty of Adam's sin. It simply says you die because you sinned. That's it. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So we have these archetypes. We have, these, we have these, the, the right way to do it, and we also have uh, the, the imputers of these things. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And so again, we have this, um, we have this uh, archetype here. Uh, death is actually a, an entity or a being or something of this sort. Right. So, so Romans 5 seems to tell us why we have to contend with this. The world was subjected to futility, Romans 8. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this same exact thing. But salvation comes into the picture not, again, here's another important lesson to teach skeptics. Salvation does not come into the picture because some guy pointlessly died on a tree so that you would have eternal life. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. It also doesn't make sense that God would just kill his own son. Does it? Just kill him. It's not that big of a deal. And everybody goes, oh, but he knew he would raise him from the dead. That's nice afterthought, but how do you know that for sure? But what is amazing is if you see that Christ fulfills all of those pieces that we talked about that are, that are results of sin, crime, and uh, a burden to be, uh, to be put on one's shoulders, a debt to be repaid, uh, missing the mark, all those are, are, are effects of this. It's amazing to see that Jesus would come willfully. He is the one who chooses to do this. His father puts him through this. And what does it do? It literally reorders the world. The gospel is beautiful because that subjection to futility no longer has to exist in the kingdom of God. It no longer does exist in the kingdom of God. We don't have to be put under. We don't have to walk in all of these myriad of bad ways. And we will never have to die. We will never have to uh, pay a penalty. I mean, you will die physically, right? But you'll be raised and you will live eternally because that tree is restored to you, that son who has given you life. So it, it's really important, guys, that we look at this when we're, when we're talking to skeptical people about our, about our faith and about our worldview, that we understand what sin is and what sin isn't, that we don't spend all of our times focused on people's behavior, right? It's fine. That's a, that's a, a result of it. But could you, have you ever looked at somebody in the eye and said, um, 
The reason why God doesn't like this is because that's outside of his order. It's outside of his order. He has something planned for humanity, and you're doing the opposite of it? Have you ever explained that to somebody? Or do you just look at him and say, God hates that? Because the world is tired of hearing that, even if it's true. What the world is looking for is, why does God hate that? Why does God hate that? Another question, have you ever given it enough thought to find out why God might hate a particular thing? Or do you just look at it and go, God hates murder, done. Do you ever think about the fact that God despises the idea that you would destroy one of his image bearers? That you are throwing your fist in the air at God when you do such a thing? Have you ever wondered why God orders sexuality a certain way? Have you ever wondered why he makes us genetically different but as two parts of one beautiful whole? Have you ever wondered why God says you should do it this way? Have you ever wondered that? You should think about it. You should process it a lot because what God is doing is showing you the order that he desires you to live in. And we're breaking that order. So, so back to the gospel. The gospel is a reordering of this because Jesus reorders this. Because we actually understand what sin, in, uh, sin is, a disordering of life. We understand how it was ushered into the world because people wanted wisdom for themselves and didn't want God a part of it. We understand why it, uh, uh, we have to contend with it because we're trained in the sin of our Father. We're trained in that exact same thing. We're discipled. And the gospel comes in and says, now it's time to make new disciples this is a beautiful beautiful lesson now the scripture comes in and Jesus says I want you to go into all the world and I want you shorthand I want you to reorder it I want you to go into all the world and I want you to preach to these people I want you to tell them of the good news that I have changed the system that I have reordered everything. I want you to tell them to be baptized, to, be, to go through this, this, uh, this ritual, this moment where you are literally saying, I'm going to die to disorder and I'm going to live to your order again, Lord. I want you to go through this. And then I want you to teach them what? All that I've commanded you. What is this? Oh, God is just jumping back into his rules and his regulations. No, he's discipling a people for order. He's making you into a wise people. So when he says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, why? Why would he want that? Because the order he established the world originally, that good order, was one of love. God wants you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why does he reorder this? Or why does he draw us back to the reordering of this? Jesus is drawing us back to this idea because if God is everything, you won't leave him at the tree and say, I don't need you. I'll do it myself. You won't even be prone to running towards disorder. You won't want it. If you understand all of these pieces, it starts to finally make sense of this amazing message. But if you don't understand it, somebody's going to look at you and go, your God's just weird. Also, he's evil because he just wants to kill everybody because two people screwed up. We don't believe that. 
We don't even believe that. What we believe is far bigger and more beautiful than, than anything, than any of that story. And what we're called to and what I'm calling you to and what you should be calling me to is a life of order. A life of order. Why? Because God made it good. God's ways are good. God's ways are right. God's love for you is pure. He wants only the best for his kids. Does that make sense to you guys? So, so when we look at Genesis and we can get into all of the details and we will, we'll just tread neck deep in the chaos here in a little bit. We need to always keep our minds fixated on the idea that, that what, is, what is being shown in the story of the flood or in Babel or, or wherever these stories are unfolding, it's a story of disorder. It's the unfolding of disorder. And what has God always done? He has always made a plan from the beginning to reorder the system. It's an amazing, amazing story, guys.